You're listening to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Ferguson, certified diversity executive, writer, human rights advocate, and co-founder of the diversity movement. On this podcast, I'm talking to trailblazers, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers who share their inspiring stories, lessons learned, and insights on business, inclusion, and personal development. Thanks for tuning in to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. My guest today is Jim Morris. Jim is an inclusionist and senior strategist and facilitator for organizations that are looking to make diversity and inclusion stick. Jim, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Jim, will you tell us a little about yourself, your background, your family, your identity, whatever it is that you'd like to share? Yeah, well, I love when you ask that question, Jackie, because it's like identity and white guy. Typically, we most of us don't think of ourselves as having. You know, I'm just a person, right? Yeah, I mean, how many times have you right. heard somebody who looks like me say, "Well, I'm not. I don't have an identity. I'm just me." So, and I'm one of those people that probably until I was 35 years old didn't understand that I did have a social group identity. That you know, other people mm-hmm. may view me differently than I view myself, and blah blah blah. So, um, so I just laugh at when somebody asked that question. It took me a while to actually even know what it meant. Um, so I'm, uh, I would care, uh, to begin with, I just had my 65th birthday, which freaks me out because I can't That's believe. Awesome. Yeah. And it's one of the things I've actually learned is if you look like me, you may make it through most of your life without having experienced a lot of uh, discrimination, but if you live long enough, age discrimination kicks in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, Jim. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to see some of that when people ask me if they can carry my bags for me and that kind of stuff. You know, it's like, <laughs> so I'm, I would identify as being an older guy. Um, I would identify yeah. as being a white guy and I'm a two-time cancer survivor and a father and a grandfather, not a grandfather, a father and hopefully a grandfather sometime soon. And, a, yeah. and um, really more of an educator than anything. I, I just love mm-hmm. figuring out how to help people learn important stuff. I love that. Jim, one of the questions, I always have a question of the season. And this question for my season eight is, will you share with us a transformational life moment? And how does that moment or experience inform or guide your life? Yeah, there's a a couple. The one that, that strikes that kind of is closer to the topic that we're talking about today was the experience actually of discovering that I'm a member of a group. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of a, of, of a singing, a woman's singing group called Sweet Honey and the Rock. But yes. my uh, my dad actually worked with Bernice Regan Johnson, who was one of the founders of that group. She actually, at a pretty young age, uh, I was listening to one of their concerts and actually singing along with them. I was like 14 years old. And uh-huh. she said, Jimmy, you know, this is our people's music. And I said, who are our people? And she said, my mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, aren't they my people? And she said, wow. well, they could be, and you could be theirs, but it's not that simple. Wow. And Bernice was great at asking me questions that made me really question myself. And although I didn't identify as a member of a group, it was the first time I actually noticed I was white. And of course, uh-huh. that's something that she had wow. noticed and people around her you know, had noticed forever. I just thought I was just like, every, you know, we were all the same. Now, I don't know why I yeah. thought that because I grew up in the age of civil rights and my parents were pretty 
involved in a lot of that, but I still kind of went for the simplest common denominator and just thought I was just like, I was just like everybody else, which I am to some degree, but I'm also completely different than everybody else, you know, as Mm -hmm. we all are. So that was really, that actually really informed me. The other event I would say is actually it happened before that one. And that one was uh, the first event was my parents and I were visiting my my grandparents in North Carolina. And I, I think I told you they lived in Eastern North Carolina and they were tobacco yes. farmers. I was like five years old and I, re- I don't remember all the details about it, but I remember being woken up early, early in the morning and my mother was mm-hmm. angry. I thought she was angry at me, but she remind, she assured me that she wasn't. We packed everything up in our car and left my grandfather's house and didn't even say goodbye to him. And I was kind of, I was in tears because I, I liked him. I loved him. I thought he was, you know, he's sure. my grandfather. That's all I knew. Mm-hmm. And as we drove out, I saw this cross that was, had been burned the night before in his oh field. God. I think it was his field. It was, it was on his property, I think. And I, I, I just remembered that experience. And then many years later, at some point, I was learning about the KKK. And I, mm-hmm. I went back and asked my parents and said, what happened that night? Because I, I just right. kind of put it out of my memory. And they said, well, your grandfather held a rally. And he was doing it in part because to show his dislike of our politics. And that mm-hmm. was the last time we saw my grandfather. Um, and it, the relationship with me and my, my mother's people has been very strained ever since. I've got one cousin I keep mm-hmm. in touch with, but I don't keep in touch with any of them because it's, they're just, I haven't figured out how to close that gap. Mm. So, yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, Jim. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine with both of those um, moments, those life moments, just thinking about things differently, thinking about yourself differently thinking about people around you differently so thank you thank you for sharing that yeah you know sometimes it's it's tough with family when we have you know different ideals and and how do we bridge those gaps I think um it's something we're all still trying to figure out a little bit right sometimes with our families so yeah you know yeah somebody one of my mentors once said um you know we teach that most which we want to learn Mm -hmm. and and, you know, mm-hmm. for me, a core hunger is how do I close that gap with people like that? Because we, you know, yeah. we got to close the gap. We can't just vilify them and demonize them and separate ourselves right. from them. And, you know, we've got to figure out a way to, particularly, I feel like people like me need to close that gap. So, yeah, it still torments me a bit in a good way, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of closing the gap and, and the, you know, educating, right? Let's talk about why DEI is important to you and, and how did you get into this work? Well, I, I, like I said, I class myself as an educator and I, I pretty quickly figured out that if I really wanted to have impact, I needed to figure out how to either work in a different school district than where I was, or we were also doing some work in my, in my school with partnerships with businesses. And I realized that businesses were actually pretty fundamental to changing the way we think about education. And how we think about kids and how we, and I was working in a school that was majority black kids and staff. And I was the, I was the principal of that school. So that was odd Uh and complicated. And um, so I, I moved from being this educator. I discovered the, the importance of business and I was like, maybe there's a way to actually work in business and help businesses understand more about what some of these kids, what kids need and what educators need and what communities need 
in order to create a healthy community. And, and this idea of going to work in businesses started to make sense for me. So I spent a lot of time understanding more about working in businesses and ended up doing a lot of leadership development work as a, as a business owner, then as a COO of a publicly traded company, and then kind of on my own as a consultant, did a lot of work in doing leadership development. And then in 2001, another epiphanal experience was attending a, a workshop on being a white guy. And again, it was one of those, I knew kind of at that point that I was a white guy, but I didn't know there was a role that white men needed to play in terms of creating a more equitable world. I'm ashamed to admit it, Jackie, but I thought it was up to everybody else to figure out how to do that. And I, I discovered that that wasn't the case at all. So I really switched my whole practice from just leadership development to really working with leaders who were interested in equity and inclusion, including myself. So that's how I made that shift. Um, and uh, and it was, it's been really, really good and really, really complicated because I, on the one hand, I don't feel like there's any way in my lifetime I'll know as much about diversity, equity, and inclusion as a member of an underrepresented group or somebody who's been marginalized um, or racialized. I, there's no way I can understand it at the, in my bones to the same degree. But I do think there's a way that I can take what I know and am learning and help other people who look like me become better advocates and better supporters of the work, not just for everybody else, but for ourselves. And that to me is the biggest one. Um, Yeah. So important, you know, and you're right. It's everyone's responsibility. We all have to do this work together. Um, And so many of us can be advocates, right? Where our privilege lies and where our opportunity is to speak up for others, to advocate for others, um, you know, to provide opportunity and access to others. And that's all of our responsibility in different ways, right? You know, it's not every day, Jim, that you see a white, cisgender, hetero man leading <laughs> DEI for organizations or, or helping organizations think about what their responsibility is. And I love that. Talk about, if you would, how white men who often feel outside of the DEI conversation can not only participate in those efforts, participate in the work, but also lead the work. Yeah, well, you know, as you know better than most, I'm going to guess by everything that you've done and your amazing story and experience is um, there's, there's something to be gained for uh, people that look like me, because it, to begin with, if we really want to address this issue, if you think about why have we been at working on diversity and inclusion for over 50 years, and we seem to not be making more progress than we are. My belief is, and feel free to disagree, is that part of that is because the group that has the most influence over making the shift in terms of how are we think about it societally is the group that's in charge of uh, of a lot of the, that kind of has the privilege, not in charge of, but the group that has the pri- the most privilege and the most access to the culture. And okay. if you look at if you look through the record of history, the groups that have helped cultures and societies make the shift the most are the groups that were in, in, in a dominant role, either that mm-hmm. or through super disruptive, uh, you know, revolutions. Mm-hmm. And that may be, and that may be what's required, and that maybe is what happened in, in the sixties and seventies, and needs to happen again. But the other way things change is when people who are part of the dominant group actually take on the issue, right? Yeah. Um, so it's if you think about uh, what's going on with global warming, there's a lot of evidence to support that the people that are going to that are going to have the most impact on what's happening with global warming are, are leaders of energy companies. 
right? Mm-hmm. Once they buy into the whole thing, it'll shift. It doesn't mean it's all on them and it's all their responsibility, but once they buy in, it will shift. Once people who look like me buy in that there's an issue and a problem, it will shift, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just, I'm fascinated by trying to help people who don't, who like me, didn't understand their role, didn't understand they have an identity, didn't understand how they could contribute or even what the, their enlightened self-interest was, how there's, yes. there's all of that available to us in the work. Yeah. Absolutely, Jim. And you know, I just recalling what you said earlier about ageism, right, especially in the workplace, right, but in in society in general, you know, a lot of times what happens is certain groups feel like, oh, this isn't my conversation, this isn't my fight. But in fact, when you think about uh, ageism as, you know, a a form of discrimination, or just age as a part of um, diversity, or disability, which, as we all know, any of us can become a part of that diversity group at any point in our life through age, through right. accident, through illness, right? And so, um, you know, this is everyone's conversation. This is everyone's responsibility and everyone's work to make sure that we right. as humans, right, have uh, equal opportunity and access and the opportunity to, to grow our careers be respected, right? Feel safe in our communities. Um, and that's, again, everyone's responsibility. So I, I love that. Um, yeah. And I love that you're having those conversations too, Jim. If I can add one other element to it, Jackie, um, you know, sure. one of the things that I think a lot of, not all, of course, men, just like everybody, white guys are not a monolith. There's a lot of different kinds of us, right? Correct. But one of the things I think that's true for a lot of white men in the U.S. is we were acculturated not to feel, but to think, and not to understand mm-hmm. how to empathize, but to learn how to problem solve. Yeah. Um, right. It's the it's so you know the the thing that I mean, most mm-hmm. men in your audience will identify with a time when their partner, if they're in a heterosexual relationship, their partner said to them, "I had this problem at work today," and instead of just listening, we drop into problem solving for them. Mm-hmm. You know. That's right. Um, yeah. But one of the things that that I'm just becoming more and more aware of in terms of my own self-interest is when I really work on my understanding about how to develop better relationships with everyone, particularly people who are, you know, it's across difference. Um, it, I, my world is so much more robust now in terms of the people I work with, the kind of work I do, the way we get projects completed, the kind of innovation that we have for the projects that we're doing. All of those things have gotten better. As a, as a result of me expanding who I consider part of my peer group and who I work with and how I do it. Mm, I love that. That's, you know, it's so important to think about that because you're right, Jim, we have to message people and how it's going to affect them, right? What's the, what's the benefit? What's the benefit to your organization if you're an organizational leader? And so understanding all of those pieces and how it affects your recruiting and retention efforts, how it affects innovation, as you mentioned, how it affects productivity of your employees when they feel safe and happy and and they feel like they can contribute or are contributing something valuable to the organization. All of that feeds into the the business reason um, apart from the, you know, the human reason, right, to to do this work. So that's, that's another great point. Yeah. Jim, how do you respond to people who think that because you're, you know, a white, cisgender, hetero male, that 
you don't understand some of the um, the nuance and struggles of underrepresented people and, and that you don't have all of the qualifications or can't have all of the qualifications to lead this work? I tell them they're right. <laughs> I say, you're right. I, I'm not qualified to do a lot of this work. That's why I try not to do it by myself. I mean, I don't do work in client systems by myself. Even if I were a member of an underrepresented group, I wouldn't do it by myself because I, I can, yeah. you know, confirmation bias in, a, in the committee of one is almost always going to work out well. So That's how right. do, you know, we have to get diversity in the room. Um, the other part I would say, and this is, it's, uh, you know, it's nuanced is I could, you know, I, I don't call it, I heard it called and Now I call it white centering. There's a lot of tendency when you're working with the population. I work with all sorts of leaders from all sorts of all stripes and all creeds and ethnicities and races. But sure. I work really on how to create holistic engagement in organizations, which usually means how do you get the dominant group members to sit at the table? And in doing that, it's rare that, um, that white people understand what their role is and the white centering thing becomes kind of an issue because people start, as soon as a white person starts to kind of um, become more aware of the things they hadn't seen, which typically happens, and you've seen this in diversity trainings, that epiphanal moment where somebody who looks like me or a white person goes, whoa, a white cisgendered straight person says, whoa, I had sure. no idea about all this. It's like, a, it's a wonderful moment that's a spear through the heart. And then they become really interested in understanding more about their lived experience, sometimes to the extent that they forget why we're talking about this, which was not just their personal development, but how we can create a world that works for everyone, right? Yes. So it's a, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's nuanced. It's like on the one hand, we want people who have no previous awareness to tap into their own lived experience to understand that. And remember that the focus needs to really be on the marginalized, underrepresented, exploited people who, who have been doing this work on their own forever. How do we partner yeah. with them in helping change that piece of the work versus going into a, a state of you know, internal reflection about whiteness? Mm, I mean, it's an absolutely. and both, right? You got to do a little bit of both. But it's pretty, as you've seen, it's pretty typical for people to kind of get overly absorbed in their own experience when understanding their lived experience of everybody else is important. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. That's such a good point, Jim. And, you know, another thing is for those of us who, who are underrepresented to be able to give a little bit of grace because some people are having these epiphanies and conversations and realizations for the very first time. And because, of course, we all see through our own lens of experience and don't realize how just navigating the day-to-day -day can be so difficult for any marginalized group. And so that understanding is such an important part and in, in an initial step in the conversation where there are so many challenges and struggles that if you're not marginalized or underrepresented, you don't realize can be difficult just navigating right. your day to day right. and going through, um, you know, life in your in your body, right? And so, yeah, um, I think that's such an important part of the conversation. I don't know how you do it. I, I, and you, meaning people who are part of underrepresented groups, how you have continue to be in this work for as long as you are with the 
I mean, the number of times somebody, when I try to explain the lived experience of people who are part of my marginalized groups, people that look like me look at me and go, no, that can't be. Or even, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're listening to their, their cisgendered same, same race partner who's just mm-hmm. talking about the experience of being a woman. And we go, right. oh, that can't be, can't be like that. So number one uh, reflex almost always, and you've seen it, is incredulity. Oh, come on. It can't be that bad. I don't right. know how you in particular, with the, um, the amazing amount of grace and patience and kindness at heart that you obviously, I mean, I can just feel it. I don't know how you've kept that through through so many experiences. Like, oh, come on, you're making too big a deal out of this, or whatever mm-hmm. they say. You know, it's like, yeah, absolutely, astonishing. And it's got to be, it's got to be traumatizing in ways that I can only imagine. You know, you know what I would say, Jim, and I, I do have this conversation with practitioners because. It can be tough, right? Because you're human first and then you're leading this work. But, you know, the way I think about it is if you can change one heart or open one person's perspective, the ripple effect to their family and their community and their workplace can be so exponential and and that makes it worth it. Um, and that's what I think about on the the struggle days, right? And so... Um, you know, if we're all doing that a little bit at a time with one person at a time, it can it can change the world. Jim, let's talk about Jim Morris Consulting. What are some of the challenges that organizations come to you with? And will you share some advice about how to ensure that DEI sticks in organizations? Because we all have, you know, as, as organizational leaders, these great ideas and goals and what we'd like to do. But when we get into the work, it's hard and complicated and you're dealing with, you know, personalities and, and you know, long held beliefs and changing and shifting culture. How do you help organizations do that work? Well, thanks for asking. And um, I mean, I, this is I could I can I'm confused at a higher level than I was five years ago, but it's not like I figured it all out. Right. Um, and I, I, I learned so much by watching people like you and the practice that you've built and the way that you're doing the work. So a lot of my my teachers and mentors consciously and unconsciously are everybody else that's doing the work. So I wouldn't claim any of my ideas as purely just mine. <clears throat> but a couple of things. And I think I just wrote a piece about this for, uh, in response to that article in The New York Times. Did you see that article about diversity training yes. you know, how and how it might be worse? For people, right? Yes. So I wrote mm-hmm. a big response to that and sent in a letter to the editor, and I'm sure it won't get in. But, but my thing is, and I'm kind of on a, on a soapbox about this is, you know, a lot of organizations do training because it's it creates that epiphanal spear in the heart moment, you know, for people to kind of get aware and to to understand more about what's involved. But it training by itself doesn't actually accomplish everything so to me it's like it's got to have to be events which are trainings coupled with Mm -hmm. activities which are looking at ways that they create uh different policies and practices inside the business those two things have to happen now the truth is my experience i don't know what you think is but and i'd be curious to hear but i think many organizations uh succumb to the temptation of just doing training because they can Mm -hmm. pull it off they can get people in the room to show up and listen and go holy smokes, that was amazing. I've learned something new, right? right? Which is different than creating systemic, lasting, you know, sustainable change in organizations. 
So to me, even though part of my model, my organization's model is based on doing training, part of it is to say, cut it out. Stop just doing training. If you can't, if you're not doing training and it's not paired with internal change in your organizations, it's going to be a lovely experience and a little bit more like entertainment than about process improvement. Yeah. One thing just to just to grab onto is you said the word practice, and I love that word when I'm thinking about DEI. Because when you think about a training, right, just as you said, it can be a one and done, right? More compliance, like, okay, I've done my training. I know I'm not supposed to say this or I'm not supposed to do this. But a practice suggests an ongoing state, which is what we need. We need to continue to learn. We need to continue to have those conversations and be open um, to what we need to do from a personal perspective, from an organizational perspective. And so I, I just wanted to point out that that word is absolutely a word that I use all the time to describe Good. DEI because it's an ongoing thing, right? It's an ongoing yeah. commitment. So I, I love that you said that. And I know I cut you off, but I just wanted to no, 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 um, no, I'm, mention no, I'm that one part. That. And I... Yeah, yeah, and I I don't like calling it training because training implies a you know a level of mastery. It's like okay, I, and you you saw what happened with um, right. unconscious bias training. It's like, hey, I don't have any unconscious bias. I passed the training. That's right. It's like right. really, <laughs> yeah. So it is. I mean, it's a complete practice, and and the way I talk about it is everybody has to have their own individual diversity practice in order to be mm-hmm. a more effective leader, and organizations need to understand that, it, you know, we always say the journey thing, right? It's a, it's a practice and a journey versus a check the box mm-hmm. and an initiative, right? It's not going right. to end. Um, and you asked back to the question you asked a while ago, I was like, how do I manage being a white standard straight guy doing this work? Part of it is I learned, I have to develop my own resilience practice because, you know, mm-hmm. half the time I get it wrong. And somebody has uh-huh. to say, Jim, I found that really offensive. Or, you know, that thing you did back there, that, really hurt my feelings or do you realize you didn't even include me in that i've got to i just have to kind of over and over again own it and say mm-hmm. jackie you know i'm working on it and i'm I, I didn't do it and i'm really i apologize and i'll just try and do it better next time and thank you for telling me you know i just have to get really good at trying to make repairs and to understand and to keep moving forward and not let it not let it do what a lot of people do particularly people that look like me that was i went to a diversity training it didn't go well I'm out. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, Jim, you know, I, I like that you brought that up, right? Because getting it wrong is something that so many of us are afraid of, especially for people who are not in those marginalized diversity groups. They don't want to get it wrong. And so it, they feel sometimes that inaction is better than making a mistake. Can you talk a little about how you get comfortable being uncomfortable, right? <laughs> with with those those um, you know, those mistakes and which happen. We're human. We don't have all the answers and best practices continue to evolve. How do we practice, right? How do we do this work without that fear of getting it wrong or or how do we mitigate the fear? Right. Well, I think there are a couple. I'll, I will go to how to here because I think there are a couple of steps, particularly for people who are insiders or people who are part of the dominant group. So one is resist the urge to defend your intentions. 
resist the urge to say, oh, Jackie, I'm a really good guy. And, you know, I'm not racist at all. And, you know, I'm sorry I made that mistake, but it's just an accident. You know, to, we try and say that instead of saying, so, so one number one is, is try not to defend or justify whatever your intentions were. Most people know your intentions were good. You know, most people yeah. are capable of saying he doesn't, he doesn't mean to be doing, to be offensive or to be harmful, you know? So most people get your intentions. So don't feel like you have to defend them. And I sometimes call it, you know, defending our nice guyness or our nice personness. I'm a good person. I want you to understand. Well, good people do good things. And one of the good things people do is when we've caused harm without excuse or without justification, we say, I hear you. I can see it hurt. I know what it feels like when I get hurt in the same way. I can see that that's happened. I didn't mean it. And I apologize. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so to own it with empathy, to own it and say, you know, and even that apology, I probably would take out. I didn't mean it. I meant what I meant, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So to just say, to, so to do that. And the third step is to not let your own shame get in the way of your own action, right? It's a shame response. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's like yeah. I, I've let myself down. When I hurt somebody across difference, I've let myself down because it's against the values I, I espouse and believe in. So I feel remorse, I feel self-loathing, I feel whatever I feel, and I and those feelings are horrible. I mean, nobody likes, I mean, that's why everybody's doing so much work on shame. Nobody likes to be in shame. But it's up to us to kind of be resilient enough to say, that's my self-talk, that's my inner critic, right? Because what I've noticed is I've done some, some egregious, some really egregious things, Um and really cause people some harm. And they've been really good at telling me about it. And when I own it, they go, it's okay. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. And they mean it. They mean it. You know, that's yeah, like, I think, I think just like I have to learn to apologize. I think if you're a person who's worked with people like me a lot, you've learned that I'm going to make mistakes. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to happen. Um, and you're, you're not, you're not keeping score on that. You're just like, when it happens, I'll let him know. And if he's open, we'll keep going. Absolutely. Absolutely. Such good advice. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's something I think that we can use in, in every part of our lives is how to properly apologize. And empathize, right? And empathize. Yes. Apologize yeah. and empathize. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. From your perspective, you talk a lot about uh, what an inclusive leader is. What are the characteristics of an inclusive leader? And how do leaders begin to move in that direction? Well, I've got a series of skills I think about when I do that. But one is empathy. A big one is empathy. Um, listening, you know, so empathy is important. And empathy, incidentally, is almost impossible, I've noticed, for most people when we're in shame. When we're in shame, we bypass empathy and we go straight to I'm sorry. And it's not just that I'm sorry, like I feel bad. It's like, I'm sorry for you, which you don't need me to feel sorry for you, right? You don't need my pity, right? So we, we bypass empathy and either shut down or go to, uh, I'm sorry. So empathy, listening, really listening and understanding the impact and being willing to sit in the discomfort of knowing that somebody's hurting in ways that you may not understand. Oh, and incidentally, mm-hmm. one of the things that really helped me learn about empathy was having cancer twice. You know, I'm a two-time mm. cancer survivor. And people used to come up and go, 
you'll kick it, man. You're going to be fine. And I was, I, occasionally, if I was in a grumpy mood, I'd just look at him and say, really, have you talked to my doctor? I don't, I'm mm-hmm. not sure that I'm going to be fine. It sounds like you know that. You know, people say things in, in an effort to try and make you feel better, but they're not really yeah. thinking about what you need. You know, they're just, mm-hmm. they're just kind of talking about it. So empathy is a big one and really learning to feel empathy, which sometimes means saying, you know, like with me to say, hey, God, I have no idea what it feels like to be you right now. I have no idea. But I know how uncomfortable that event made me. And I know how mm-hmm. badly I feel. Um, sometimes that's the best we can do, you know. Um, yeah. It's almost worse to sometimes try and name you know how somebody feels when there's no way you can know how they feel, you know. So empathy, listening, um, really learning to understand kind of all these paradoxes. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I'm I'm part of an insider group and I have a responsibility and the work is not mine alone. It's an and both. We got to do it together. It's it is my responsibility to take action on what I notice around systemic unfairness, discrimination, bias, uh, systemic disadvantage. It is my job. Right. And it's not my fault that we're in this system. Right. I don't need to go to shame. Right. Yeah. It's it is my responsibility, and uh, it's not just me. We have to do it together. So understanding those, par- you know, the group individual paradox. I'm a member of a group, but yeah. I'm also an individual. All that stuff. So all those mm-hmm. things. And another big one for me is understanding and being able to dis- distinguish between sameness and difference, and our natural psychological reaction to difference, which is whoa, what's going on here? This is a different. You know, we our brains create a hack around full inclusion. And our brains say, if you don't get it, I know you know this, but our neurobiology tells us that you don't understand what's happening. Therefore, it must be a little dangerous. So our first step when we see difference is to back up, not to step mm-hmm. in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those, there's a, those kind of skills to me are important. The other one for me that I say to audiences all the time is like, here's how you do inclusion. Whatever exclusion is, do the opposite. <laughs> If you're used to making decisions by yourself, stop. If you're used to thinking it's all on you, stop. If you used Mm -hmm. to think you're the smartest person in the room, stop. If you think you're the one that's least capable, stop. Wow. Right? I mean, that's so simple, Jim, but that's so good. That's that's so right. You know, just whatever you're doing, stop, think about it, and go in another direction. Try something. That's simple, but, but so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the other one for me is about listening is about not talking. Now, I'm not I'm not modeling that very well in this interview, but it's an interview, so I'll, but there, but there's a thing I say all the time and this is kind of cheesy, but I like it a lot. It's wait. And it's a good thing okay. for leaders. You know wait? I don't. Why am I talking? Why am I talking? Wait. <laughs> Why am I talking? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So I, I've, I've been in meetings with, with senior leaders that I've been working with and they'll have me observe them or something just around how they're doing inclusion and stuff. And once in a while, they'll get going and I'll just write white, W-A-I-T on a piece of paper from the back of the room and just hold it up. And they go, okay, right. I can, are there any questions? Anybody want to add anything? Because we just get going. You know, we forget to listen. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's so important as we think about being an inclusive leader and how we manage our meetings, because it's very often when we think about, you know, diversity, personality is part of diversity. 
And so, you know, you're going to naturally make space for the people in the room that are extroverts or think and process quickly to an answer to a question. But you've got to really give space in the room for people who either throughout their careers felt like they shouldn't contribute, weren't able to contribute, and pull that a little bit. Ask that question. Uh, Does anyone have any questions? Or call people by name. Is there anything that, that you'd like to add? I think that's so important. And then being comfortable with that dead space, Jim, for me is something that is a practice, right? Because people want to fill the dead air, right? And right. so um, because it's uncomfortable, it feels, you know, a little weird. But giving that space for people to really process information and give them time to think about what their questions may be, what they'd like to add and contribute is, is so important in inclusive leadership. And I love that as an example, because that's something simple that you can do. Share what you need to and give space for others to contribute. You don't know what kinds of amazing ideas you can get. Right. And, and I, don't, I don't know if you, if you think the same way about this, I'd be curious. But I notice that's a lot about extrovert privilege. Right. Mm-hmm. So that when, when, when the room gets quiet, the extroverts are going, oh, man, this is uncomfortable. I better say something to get people talking. That's again. right. While the, many mm-hmm. of the introverts are going, I am so glad he shut up because I need a couple of minutes just to think about right. what I'm hearing. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. So uh, so I just and I notice in organizations, many organizations, particularly sales driven organizations, there's a huge bias towards extroversion. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Um and it's so it's a, to me it's a dimension that we really I don't pay enough attention to, and including sometimes in meetings is don't if you've got a meeting with thirty people realize that half the people in the room are not going to feel comfortable speaking, so how do you mm-hmm. get half the people how do you get the meeting to work, you know and one way to do it of course and you've probably done this hundreds of times is you just break them into smaller groups of two or three and say so talk about that amongst yourselves talk about mm-hmm. whatever this topic is for the next five minutes and then let's reconvene and see what happens. Sometimes that's the best way to get the, the introverts to, you know, join the conversation. So, that's right. Absolutely. Lots of great ideas. Jim, let's talk about your latest book, Gaslights and Dog Whistles, Standing Up for Facts Over Fiction in a Fearful and Divided World. What inspired you to write that book and what can we learn by reading it? I, every time somebody reads that title, I say to them, I, I feel like saying, well, you can tell it wasn't created by a marketing company. That's the world's longest title. But I appreciate you asking about it. it it's actually, I wrote it. I'm, I'm thrilled by this book because I wrote it for no other reason than uh, in 2020 after, in, as, a, as a reaction to the backlash of all the mm-hmm. civil rights protests. Um, the peaceful civil rights protests that happened all over the world, the largest, to be clear, the largest civil rights protest, protest in the history of the world with over 18 million participants, a group started to form that was started to talk about critical race theory and to mm-hmm. try and find ways to, um, using the term critical race theory, which almost nobody knew what it meant, to say we've got to stop teaching critical race theory in our mm-hmm. schools, which basically meant we've got to stop teaching anything about discrimination, racism, enslavement, or the history of civil rights in the United States. And they, mm-hmm. they, it was a brilliant strategy because they captured all of that in that term, critical race theory, because no, nobody knew what it meant. 
It also sounds like right. a theory versus a reality, right? Mm-hmm. So they, that group actually created a handbook for how to disrupt school board meetings, corporate meetings, DEI training, or anybody who's advocating for diversity, equity, and inclusion or civil rights. It was a handbook on how to disrupt them. Nobody had developed a book about how to stand up for diversity, equity, and inclusion, civil rights, and, con- and preserving yeah. teaching the real history of the United mm-hmm. States. So I, uh, I wrote a book about it. That's, and that's the book. You know? And it's really, it's super short. I think it's like 70 pages. I think it's only 22,000 words. And the whole purpose of the, and as an author, you know, it's, that's not a very big book. You know that, but um, it's the whole idea behind the book was to be a handbook for people who were like, what is this critical race theory? How do I talk about it? Where did it come from? How do I defend it? And what do I do to stand up for continuing to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in corporate spaces? So mm-hmm. it's been very well received. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm actually thinking about coming out with a second edition because people have come back with lots of good feedback about it. But the goal here is just to equip educators, parents, school boards, uh, DEI professionals, corporate leaders to understand more about how to deal with the criticism, skepticism, and negativity of people who would just to see us stop talking about all of this. So Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's so important to have those conversations about those terms. And we've talked about two of them. We talked about privilege and bias which make people feel defensive. And critical race theory is something that even without fully understanding it, a lot of people's reaction is, oh no, that's that's bad, right? No, we can't have that in the schools. But really we need to teach the history of our country, right? Uh, the history of marginalized people and what happened and how those things that happened still affect right? Uh, education systems and, you know, healthcare systems and financial systems and housing systems. And, and how does, how did those things that were put in place affect us now? And, you know, and understanding that rather than just skipping by it is just part of our history, right? And so by not teaching that, it doesn't get. It doesn't validate the the struggle that so many of us have to endure through our life, or the things that are are harder for me. Jim, I want you to understand those things that are hard for me. And if they're not taught in school, if they're not understood by your parents, you know, then you don't learn that until much later, if at all, right? And so by Having right. those conversations early, it, it get levels the playing field enough to say, wow, different people navigate the world differently. They have different experiences. And how can we, you know, bridge those gaps? And so I love that you wrote this book. I think that it's a it's a great foundation for understanding what CRT is and then how to think about it, how to talk about it as it applies. Um, across education, across business, across, you know, community conversations. So I, I think it's it's great. Well, thanks. And, you know, um, a couple of things about it. So critical theory, as you know, is actually just the study of how things happen in societies at a systemic level. So there's critical race theory, there's critical gender theory, there's critical, all of that was a, a bunch of studying that started in the 30s and 40s with 
mostly white Western educated philosophers and, and psychologists, but they came up with some good ideas, which was we need to look at things holistically and systemically. Um, mm-hmm. And and that so critical race theory is just talking about as you said it's it's looking at the original reason everybody got together to work on the theory was like discrimination had been illegal for twenty years in the United States almost twenty years and it was still rampant so they're like what's happening well what's happening is it's baked into our system of governance it's our mindsets right. so how do you unbake it how do you get it out um, mm-hmm. yeah yeah so I'm the and you know, I, I, one of my collaborators and a person I want to lift up here for a moment is a guy named Rand Miller, who's got a mm-hmm. book coming out, Resistance Stories from Black History for Kids. And I was telling somebody about that book, and they said, well, that would be a great book for black kids to read. And it was like, no, you missed the point. Black kids are our <laughs> kids. It's a, it's it's our story. Let's all talk about right. I mean, you know. The the French Revolution didn't involve me, but that doesn't mean I don't learn about it because I'm not French. It's like it's it's part of American history, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. resistance stories for black kids is like a a phenomenal way to approach it. We we're talking about historical literacy here. We're talking Mm -hmm. about preserving historical literacy. It's as simple as that. We can't decide which parts of history we're going to leave out, particularly when they're it's real history. It's not made up history. It's real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Enough of the soapbox on that one. But. Absolutely. America, it's American history. That's right. And we've got to understand that. It's American history. Um, in order to do better. Right. Mm-hmm. Jim, what is the message that you want to leave our listeners with today? <laughs> Listen to you. <laughs> Listen to people like Jackie. Listen to people like Jackie who got it going and who have the grace and patience and love and spirit and intellect to make this work. But I would say other than that is give yourself permission to not be perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't make perfection the standard by which you set yourself around doing taking action. Take action first and figure out how to deal with whatever the ramifications of, of that are second. And, um, and can, let's continue to work on how we create workplaces that are fit for everybody where everybody can belong and be themselves so that people can, you, you want to help the gross domestic product of the United States. You want to help us recover from whatever economic woes we are. Make it, make a workplace so that everybody can spend a hundred percent of their time doing their job instead of trying to fit in. Absolutely. Such great advice. Jim, how can people learn more about your organization and get in touch with you? Uh, so I have a modest website. Um, jimmorris.net it's jim-morris.net and I'm pretty uh, I'm a pretty frequent contributor to a number of different blogs and on LinkedIn and I, I do a lot of work there and I also have a pretty uh, robust blog that people I'm sorry blog that people can sign up for that's it's a blog and I don't do podcasts like this but I do a video I, I've done a series of videos with folks so that way those are the two ways um, yeah thanks perfect Jim, thank you so much for spending some time. I have learned so much, gotten some great insights. I know that our listeners have gotten some great insights as well. And I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I thank you for spending some time with me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jackie. And thank you for the work you're doing. And thank you for the opportunity to do some of it with you. I'm honored.
Thanks for joining me for this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and review this podcast and share this episode with a friend. Become a part of our community on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. This show was edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson. Join us for our next episode of Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. Take care of yourself and each other.